Yeah. I've seen. I've watched videos of people rebinding books before, and it's um it's intense to say the least. Especially like um uh like antique books. Yeah, I was going to say these are up in the big leagues, aren't they? Yeah, and it's just it's quite stressful because you're like, oh, they're holding something from like. 1545 or something and they're just like re like rebinding it and it's got like the signature of i don't know some famous mary queen person. of scots in it or something and you're like oh fuck fuck don't fuck it up sandra you accidentally knock over the glue she's like oh they're gonna blame me for this <laughs> bit of pva i used to love putting pva on my hands and peeling it off oh, very tactile Mm, yeah, it was forever getting in trouble with it. And the glue gun as well. I liked... Um... Doing the same thing, you sadist. Yeah. yeah, I am a bit psycho. But hey, here we are. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with this story. It takes place in 1854... And it takes place on the other side of the world. We're Great. going to a land down under. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Because, as we all know, the history of Australia begins on around January the 20th, 1788. Yeah, the fir- nothing there before. No. Nothing. Because that is the date that the first fleet finally arrived from England after a voyage of approximately 252 days. <sighs> Or about 250 days longer than I am willing to spend on a boat. Can you imagine the smell? It would have been yeah, honking. It would have been ripe uh, yeah. for those first few people. They would, have, they would have been happy that they'd reached anywhere where they were allowed to come out. Hmm. Would they have been in that ship, like, not being able to go on deck and stuff for that whole amount of no, time? I'm assuming they did allow them to go up on deck. Because I guess once you're a certain way out, it's like, well... What are you going to do? Where they're going to go, yeah. yeah. You can jump over the side if you want, but you... Because this was people who were sentenced to transportation, and especially at this time... For stealing a loaf of bread or yeah, something. Yeah, but transportation had a fixed term. So it's like, well, you spend uh, seven okay. years or you know ten years or 15 years working here, and you get to go back. And then you get to come back to Blighty. Yeah, where it's... You'll finally experience drizzle again. <laughs> of course... It's only true to say that the history began in 1788 if you ignore the around 40,000 years of history that the indigenous Australian people had been living through, which regrettably the vast majority of European immigrants would consistently do over the next 200 plus years. Mm. And still do. To a certain extent. There are some people now who are starting to realise how much of a bad idea that was. But yeah, I mean, even in the 60s, we had the stolen generation, didn't we? Mm hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. is another story for another day. Absolutely. Landing at Port Jackson in Sydney Harbour, it initially didn't seem like this first settlement would last long. The second and third fleets that were supposed to bring strong workers to help you know, construct the infrastructure of the colony, uh, they arrived with many of the convicts aboard either very, very sick, because it turns out disease quite likes people being kept in a confined space for you know, months at a time, Dreek and damp. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's plenty of damp in there. I'm guessing these weren't the A-class ships that were being sent across. You know, these weren't your finest ships of the line being uh, borrowed from the Royal Navy to transport. These were merchant vessels who were chancing it to make big profit. Mm. Yeah, and also, apparently, a lot of them just had things wrong with them uh, that meant that they couldn't really do the heavy lifting. 
What, like prior to being on the boat yeah, or like, whilst they were on the boat? Prior. It's almost like um, a lot of the people who are being arrested for, you know, stealing food and stuff may have some condition, pre-existing condition, which meant that they found it difficult to have gainful employment. So, like, you know... Which uh, is why they had to steal in yeah. the first place, to get their loaf of bread. Yeah, you hmm. think yes. about people who may have scoliosis or they may have, uh, you know, a shattered leg, which means that they have a heavy limp and they can't lift a lot of stuff. And so, like, oh, well... When we've got people lining up in front of the factory wanting a job, yeah, you, you're not going to be picked first with those things. No. Can you imagine having to like live through that, like just having to like rock up like one day, like hoping you'll get work? Yeah, and hoping then not that you can picked. catch the the eye of the foreman. They go, and you, yes. Mm, I bet you were like, if you were quite good looking, you'd get in there a bit better, wouldn't you? Mm, but I don't think many people in in Georgian Britain looked particularly good. Mm. I imagine there was a lot of scars and a lot of warts and the spots must have been terrible. Acne must have been an ongoing problem with the people of Georgian Britain. Yeah, some people get it really bad, don't they? Mm. Terrible. I mean, especially if you consider the living conditions and that bathing still wasn't, you know, du jour. No, I never got spots. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you probably would have done if you lived through Georgian Britain. Um, yeah, potentially, but um, but you'd have covered it up with plenty of uh, lashings of white powder. Yeah, a bit of lead. Yeah, you'd have on been my fine. Face. You cover yeah. those spots up with lead, you'll look great. Yeah. But while the Georgians were terrible at bathing, one thing they were great at was creating convicts. This was the time of the most punitive um, justice system that Britain's pretty much ever seen. So there were plenty of people who you could sentence to transportation. And after 15 years of throwing bodies at the problem of the colony, literally just shipping more and more people over there, the colony had finally developed to the point where it was self-sufficient in grain production, which is a real important tipping point for any new enterprise. You know, Mm -hmm. they weren't desperately looking out to sea for the next supply ship, which must have been a pretty hairy thing. You know, when you're noticing that you're down to the last loaf of bread in the local shop and you're like, any day now. Do, do you think they were, like, uh, deporting people loads because they just wanted to get rid of the nuisance characters or they wanted to build up the population the other side so then they could, it could become profitable for them at some point? No, I think it was always to try and just get rid of people rather than deal with the problem. But the, the upshot of it was that it eventually became self-sufficient and then the money men get involved. And like, well, actually... You know, there's a lot of space out there. There's a lot of land. And we've already got a foothold. We've got somewhere as a staging post, and now we can start moving industry in. They've done the hard work of setting up this area. Mm. There's also a lot of snakes and crocodiles and things that can eat you. Yes, yes. And they were learning about these on the go. So, I mean, when you go to Australia now... (laughs) Trying to hug a rattlesnake. Well, the North American. But, you know, you go over to Australia now, and you're forewarned. You're like, if you see this... Don't go near it. If you see this, it's okay. They they give you it, you know. But can you imagine like living there and just having the fear of of one of these potential things being in your house? Like the most we're ever going to get in our house really is a rat or a mouse or a spider. Yeah, yeah. Like nothing that's going to like jump up and bite our bottoms when we're on the loo. I don't think toilet snakes have ever existed anywhere. I think that's just a a, a, a problem myth. you've got. It's okay. Yeah can go you don't need to keep going Do you know what i might um i might ask elliot he's australian yeah yeah i'll ask him well he he must have grown up i imagine 
when you're growing up there, it's so sort of constant that you don't really worry about it. Mm. Is that one of those things? <laughs> Elliot, have you got a scar on your bottom from the snake from the toilet? <laughs> I don't believe you. Bend over, show me. <laughs> I must inspect thoroughly. <laughs> and not only had this colony, because uh, I'm just going to move on from that image, not only had this colony uh, started being self-sufficient, it also begun developing its own industries. And it started off with a little whaling industry all of its very own. So they started sending out little whaling fleets which to kill the kill, to get the blubber. Because you know, I mean, you you talked about um, whaling before. It's the lighting of the world at this point is all mm-hmm. whale fats. Yeah. So they, they can take a bit of my fat if they want and use that. Oh, I mean, I don't know why you can't sell your liposuction sort of leavings as fuel, especially in we this economy. We need to go on Dragon's Den right now. Suck it and burn it. Yep. <laughs> Come on. I mean, what's more sustainable than that? I'll keep eating McDonald's and you'll keep having heating for your family. Yeah, it's great. I think that's, that's fair, yeah. I win, you win. After a brief coup over rum, which we will definitely be covering in another episode, I'm not going to cover it now. Great. A man by the name of Major General Lachlan McQuarrie arrived in 1810. Fabulous name. It is. He had a simple task. He was wanting to try and transform New South Wales from a penal colony to a civil society. Ready for the fancy people of London to come over. The high society. Yeah. He oversaw, and bear in mind this is 30 years after the um, colony started. Hmm. He oversaw the setting up of a bank. Okay. So they didn't have a bank for the last 30 years. Don't know. Bartering, I imagine. Well, they wouldn't have had any money, would they, surely? Like, money wouldn't have existed unless they brought money over. I, I guess they were using English currently, but not only did Macquarie set up a bank, he set up a new currency. Um, he also oversaw the setting up of the first hospital, which, considering, as I was saying, a lot of these people were sickly or deformed, hmm. probably could have done with that a bit sooner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he set up the first proto-government, in which, okay. to be fair to him, he insisted that former convicts should have an equal say with people who had chosen to emigrate. Because you'd started to get the financial emigration now to Australia. But he said, no, no, no. So long as that person has served their term of transportation... Then they're a citizen. They're a citizen. They can have equal standing. So everyone on this new continent is equal. Okay. Though obviously no indigenous peoples were were allowed. Included in that, yeah. So everyone who came from Europe, is equal Every on this, white person. Yeah, new continent that already had people on it. However, even with Sydney fast developing into a modern city, relatively, for the time, yeah. practically all the British in Australia were confined to an area of around 60 square miles. And for reference, Australia itself is approximately 3 million square miles. It's insanely big, isn't mm. it? So, I mean, to say you, you obviously had the... Um, I think it was the Digical Clan. Um, I don't know. Who I were around know. the Sydney Harbour area. Um, they were having a real shitty time of it. Mm. But most of the indigenous Australians at this point won't have even been aware of the fact that this had happened. Oh, and no, that the I doom... Guess you wouldn't, would Yeah, you? the doom had been sown because they were on like 0.0001% yeah. of the continent. Mm. And didn't 
at that point looked like they were going to be able to expand much further because it was really hard going. However, there was room to expand. Of course there was. So when the businessmen started coming over looking for profit, they were like, God, I bet there's some resources around here. We've not even looked. Look, there's some mountains over there. I bet there's some stuff just on the other side of those mountains. Let's, let's go. Let's go and have a look. There was also a growing belief that it would need to happen sooner rather than later, this expansion, mm-hmm. as the other European powers had been paying attention. And they weren't likely to sit back and watch as all the best areas in this brand new continent were settled by the Brits. Were the Brits there first then? Um, I believe the Dutch reached um, the continent first and they mapped it out, but the first people to put a settlement on Australia. And the Dutch mm. were really Western Australia. They sort of we're quite do, good at do, doing that to the Dutch. Well, they, so the Dutch they do the like map and then we sweep in, it. and we're like, no, New Amsterdam. I think you'll find that's New York, sir. It's easier to say if if anything. <laughs> it's less syllables. Come on, <laughs> snappy. Yeah, but yeah. So you know, everyone's always looking for that um, edge in terms of expansion, and the Brits having been kicked out of America. Uh, rather unceremoniously, is like, well, look at this place. This could be the new America for us. This could, mm. we'll settle it, and this time we'll keep them under heel. We're not going <laughs> to not going to do anything Although stupid like allow you know republicanism to really far away, like really far. That's probably also a benefit because they were thinking, well, at least the French aren't going to be able to come and interfere this time. Damn Lafayette, um, we'll just <laughs> we'll keep it quiet over there. But. Of course, the French did pay attention and things eventually reached ahead when it was reported that they were about to send a fleet to settle on the South Australian coast. Uh-oh. Like the French are planning on moving in next door. The bastards. The British naturally leapt into action and in 1803 sent a ship called the HMS Calcutta with mm-hmm. 402 people on board to form a new colony so that the entirety of Southern Australia could be claimed. <laughs> I was here first. Yeah, they, no, I was. They felt that 402 people would be enough to say all of this. It's the ours. entirety of Southern Australia. Yeah, we, we own that now. Because look, look at those five people over there. Yeah. yeah. Means it's ours. The most likely place for further settlement was identified at a place called Port Phillip Bay. Yeah. And although the first attempt to colonise the area was abandoned after only about four months, because it was so difficult to set up a new colony... And 402 people really wasn't enough to do it. Like I say, Sydney only got started because they kept just chucking new bodies at it. The British felt that that was more than enough for the law of dibs to apply. Yeah. After a few more failed attempts to colonise the area, Melbourne was eventually established in 1835. Okay, that's slightly more south, isn't it, I think? It was after a man called John Batman signed a very contentious treaty with the locals. Okay. What is it? What is it, Joe? All I know is basically that um, it promised them a lot of things that he wasn't in a position to offer them and that as soon as it became inconvenient to stick by the rules that had been yeah, set I out, yeah. we did the British thing of going, nope. Yeah, we, did, we didn't say that. I don't know what you mean. What yeah, you it was one of those, about? well, you know, treaties can only be signed between um, men and we don't mm. recognise your humanity, therefore this treaty is null and void. You have been lawyered. Mm, yeah, that's that's naughty, isn't it? It was very naughty. Mm. It was. And there's a lot of um, retroactive, because a lot of things around Melbourne are named after John Batman. And slowly and steadily they are being renamed because people are start, starting to realise he was a bit of a shit. 
Well, I actually, again, I, I remember having this conversation with a native Australian, just sort of admitting that actually as a, as a nation, they'd done very poorly in recognising the indig- indigenous people as America have too, but America haven't recognised it as much as I think Australia are basically holding their hands up now. Uh, and New Zealand being like, look, guys, we really messed up. <laughs> like, we're going to try and write this wrong as much as we can. We know we've got to do a lot of apologising and we've got yeah. to try and do a lot of things to make this right, but we're on that path now. Can we just... Mm-hmm. You tell us what what you need, we'll kind of work towards Wasn't that. there a big... There was a big... Um, it's quite famous. It's like a mountain... Um, uh, and it used to be a tourist thing. Like, people used to climb up it. As, are you talking about Ayers Rock or Uluru? I don't know. One of them. But anyway, it yeah. got stopped, didn't it? Yeah, they it? stopped they, people they, climbing they, it because it was yeah. a sacred site. And they... Yeah. They've reverted to using the name that the, you know, the original, the original name, yeah. name of it. Mm. Yeah. Eventually, in July 1851, Melbourne and the surrounding region had developed to the point where it could successfully argue to be independent of the governance of New South Wales. I think I know what you can say. Don't they break away into Victoria? They do. The state oh, of Victoria yes. was formed as a poorer and less developed version of New South Wales initially. Oh. But while the elites of New South Wales may have felt initially that they had gotten ridden of a drain on their resources, with Melbourne still lacking such basic infrastructure as sewers and paved roads, their feelings probably changed somewhat just a few days later when a bloke called Edward Hargreaves was sifting some gravel at Lewes Pond Creek mm. near a place called Bathurst when he noticed something yellow and glinty. Did it begin with a G it did. and end with a D? It did. He'd found God. (laughs) And he went and he opened a church. No, he'd found, obviously, gold. And unfortunately, made a rookie mistake because rather than keeping his discovery to himself, Edward immediately told a friend that he'd found his fortune. He was going to be set for life. And this friend told a few of his friends, in strictest confidence, of course. And those friends quietly told a few of their friends in strictest confidence. And so on and so forth. As the story spread, it also became more and more embellished, to the point that people from as far afield as the Americas believed that gold was so prevalent in Victoria that you could become wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. Gold rush. Yeah. Oh, so this is this is pre the American gold no, rush. No, the American gold rush was uh, 1849. Oh, okay, sorry, we're not in... Okay, I fine. only know that because uh, the San Francisco 49ers are named after that. But yes, this is a couple of years later. So as San Francisco was starting to, you know... Dry up. Well, there were too many people there. It was starting to become difficult to stake a claim. And, you know, the people who were going to get rich from it, who got rich from it, suddenly they're hearing that there's this place on the other side of the world where if you walk around, there are just nuggets of gold as big as a small dog. Have you ever been to Legoland Windsor? No. So uh, they've got a thing there where you can pan for gold. So um, you just you pan for gold. And I remember being very excited about uh, just being in Legoland in general. My brother, who was a couple of years older than me, spent the whole day from the minute we went in there to the minute we left just panning for gold yeah. while I was off How rich on loads of rides. I, mean, I remember him getting many certificates Wow! because he was very determined to get this gold and uh yeah 
So it, I mean, it looked really boring to me, but he was, he was, he was into it. So I, I guess you need that kind of single-minded determination if you're gonna, mm. if you're gonna pan for gold. Yeah. But you weren't gonna have to pan for gold in Victoria because the story went that you went over there and it was just lying on the floor, big chunks of gold. So all you mm. had to do was go for a little wander around the bush, and then you come back with enough gold to set you up for life. You know. People weren't so much expecting to go and set up staking a claim as they were. They were going to go for a, an extended holiday, yeah. fill the backpack, and then head back yeah. off to America or Scotland or Ireland or wherever they come from. Just it's a long way to go, isn't it? Well, if it, if it's guaranteed enough money to make you a lord, you probably would. Yeah, I guess so. And there were a lot of people who were, you know, willing to believe the hype. Let's say mass mass media. But that, yeah, that was all the people on the other side of the world. The initial gold rush was the people in Australia because the vast majority of Europeans who had emigrated to Australia at the time were essentially having to live as subsistence farmers. Yeah, I suppose because it was so like newly established, like everyone kind of had to. Yeah, you're pitch still scratching in. out. You know, you can go over there and you'll be granted land and you can start setting it up. But at least initially, that's really hard work because you're going out into the bush and you're having and to it's tame hot. it. Yeah. It's hot. It's um. It's like the complete opposite because I I obviously think of uh, America and the first people that went over to there, and it just seems so bleak, doesn't it? And so like hard, and so yeah, grey. Yeah. But it must have been like the opposite here. I mean, bleak, but just everything was just the sun's beating down on you and it's all there's yeah. nothing to eat or grow or yeah. yeah. And you're coming across all the different marsupials and going, what the are these franken yeah. creatures i've never mm. seen these before in my life the, like yeah. nothing that's been described everything's scary most things are poisonous you don't know the local flora and fauna you're trying to eke out some kind of uh, new farm for yourself so a lot of people were in a lot of hardship in the early years yeah and to them the stories of oh you just bend over and you pick up the gold it was too tempting so more than a few of them decided to leave new south wales for the new state of victoria yeah along with the people who were coming over from various bits of the world to try their luck and by more than a few i mean over two hundred thousand in just around three years which resulted in victoria overtaking new south wales in population Um, in the course of three years what's more popular now would you say sydney or melbourne i'd say that new well i don't know New South Wales may still be more populous than, than Victoria. People from then, Victoria call themselves Victorians, yeah. which cracks me up. But then you've got Queensland as well, which has a lot of nice coastline, and it's got all of the you know the Great Barrier Reef and all that stuff going on. Fancy. So I don't know. I, I mean, the one thing I do know is it's probably not Western Australia or the Northern Territories, to be fair. What's the capital? Adelaide. No, it's not, is it? Canberra. It's, yeah. Where the hell is that? I, I think that's in Victoria. Is it? I, I don't know. I think so. Who knows? I never went when I went over to Australia. I just stuck to the, the West Coast. Unfortunately, for the many entrepreneurial diggers, it turned out that although there was definitely lots of gold in Victoria, that was true, the vast majority of it was around 160 foot underground. Oh, what? This meant that every shaft being dug was a massive outlay of time and effort with absolutely no guarantee of any reward at the end because you'd only know if you picked the right spot once you got down to where the gold seams were. Yeah, And even worse for the diggers, the new legislature of Victoria, who were looking at their complete lack of basic infrastructure, you know, like they had one working toilet. 
Mm. It's that. It's that level of oh, oh no, two hundred thousand people have turned up, and we have three miles of paved road. We've been working as best we and can. One lavatory and one flushable lavatory. Everything else is a long drop. I think. I think we need to do something about this. We need to catch up. Yeah. And they decided that the best way to catch up was to introduce a tax that could be applied to all the people who just turned up. Okay. You know, you've, uh, you've yeah, because they're coming here. Yeah. As far as we're concerned, we were we were progressing at a pace according to our population, but then you lot turned up. We weren't ready for you. So you're going to have to pay for us to speed this up a little bit. Yeah, okay. So they decided that every digger, everyone going for gold, who are collectively known as diggers, would need to pay their way. However, okay. rather than taxing any profits that they made on the gold they dug up, it was decided that it would be better to charge a flat fee to every digger for the right to prospect within the state. Okay. This fee became known as the license, and yeah. it cost £1 per month, which is the equivalent to just over 200 Australian dollars today, or a 10% flat tax on a current average Australian salary. Okay. Which sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't think that's horrendous. And it would be if you had a steady wage. Uh, but pros- uh, yeah, of course. prospecting had no guarantee of success. And when you had already spent everything you had just getting to the gold fields and digging your shaft, this constant monthly drain on your resources was easily enough to sink people into debt. <sighs> yeah. Because, you know, it, it was a case of you were dirt poor until you weren't with the, the whole gold rush. And yeah, the vast yeah. majority of people, it's you're dirt poor, and you'll continue to be dirt poor because you'll never actually hit the big one. Forever. But they were having to constantly think, well, I've got to scrape together this pound by the end of the month. Otherwise, I am suddenly just a guy stuck in the middle of Victoria in Australia with no money, no way of making money. I am in the shit in the biggest possible way if I can't scrape together my licence fee each month. Yeah, I mean... Can you imagine living like that? I couldn't do it. Well, a lot of stress. I suppose you had no choice. Yeah. Did you? I mean, there's a lot of stress involved. And the thing is, they, they introduced this almost immediately. This is like a couple of months after the first gold was found. They're like, right, we're going to profiteer off this in, in the best way we can think of. Yeah. You're all paying this flat tax. <laughs> the diggers were further angered that despite having to pay this monthly cost, you know, to fund all the infrastructure projects... They had absolutely no representation in the Victorian government and were not eligible to vote. This was because all of the positions were held by rich businessmen who had the resources to purchase heavy machinery to get to the gold with relative ease. Mm, Of course, money is power. Yeah, meaning that they were taking an ever greater share of the gold that was being extracted year on year. Yeah. So if you took it big business enterprise and individual prospectors as the years ticked by the percentages were slowly ever inexorably big business was taking more and more and more and the prospectors were getting less and less and less so they were having to find this constant drain on an ever smaller piece of the gold pie yeah and obviously if you're a businessman and you're getting the lion's share of this almost making it into a monopoly you didn't want to run the risk of diggers getting involved in politics and potentially trying to pass legislation that might seek to level that playing field, even the tiniest bit. Yeah. Or even worse, you didn't want these, you know, these guys forming their own party, say, 
and using you know the the collective weight of the uh, votes to force through legislation that would do that. But after three years of an ever-decreasing percentage of the pie, coupled with the flat licence fee, the diggers were, understandably, in my opinion, they were beginning to get a little bit disgruntled. Yeah, well, you would, wouldn't you? You would. Joe, can I just stop you there? I can hear a noise, and I, I can't work out where it's coming from. It was the sound of Ollie's computer overheating. We did eventually fix the problem. And now back to your scheduled episode. They were so disgruntled that they started organising meetings and talking about things like group action, Mm. using slogans like no taxation without representation and no chains for free Englishmen. Well, so they've been been bashing out that first one for a long time, haven't they? Yeah. But, you know, I mean, if it's good enough for the Votes for Women crowd back home, it's good enough for this lot. Mm, Absolutely. By 1854... The number of people attending the meetings were numbering in the thousands, and the rich businessmen of Victoria and New South Wales were starting to get a little worried. They were even more alarmed when the governor of Victoria, son of a clergyman, Charles Joseph Latrobe, he actually... Le- is he French? Latrobe? Charles Joseph Latrobe. I, d- I don't know anything more about him other than that he was the son of a clergyman. Okay, fine. But he gave in to this pressure and he actually suspended the licence fee for a month. (gasps) Power to the people. Unfortunately, the people don't own the media and he was naturally branded an imbecile by the newspapers. Uh... Luckily, though, Latrobe's wife... Well, this is lucky for the, um, the rich businessman. This is not lucky for anyone else. Luckily, though, Latrobe's wife suddenly died and he decided to take an early retirement. Okay. And though there is no question of foul play that I could see, the timing does appear to be quite the coincidence. Mm. So you've got is the... there any? Are there any? Are there any hints to it being? No, it's it's murder. just you know there's this guy and he's going. Actually, I think these these diggers have a point. I think they are quite a large population, and even though we don't give them the vote, it doesn't mean they don't have power. Mm. Mm, maybe if I start to court them and then I give them voting rights, I could be. Yeah, I could get everything sorted. Oh, my wife's dead. Well, I'm going home. It it (laughs) seems to work out quite well for the businessmen, is all I'm saying. Yeah. Because the replacement sent by the British Crown was a former Royal Navy captain called Sir Charles Hotham. And he was convinced, despite the diggers making it abundantly clear, that the unrest had nothing to do with the licence fee. So every protest, every meeting, the diggers were going... we need to get rid of this license fee. This license fee is draconian. It's not a fair way of asking us to contribute. It's putting yeah. people into destitution. He went, well, the first thing I can see is that clearly this, this license fee thing is just a smokescreen. That's not what's really going on here. Okay. Because he believed that it was actually being orchestrated by European revolutionaries intent on setting up an anarchist enclave in the new territories of Australia. Or even worse, another republic like America. <sighs> oh, so everything they they wanted not to happen. Yeah, he's like, well, they're saying it's just. You about can this see why they were suspicious, though, weren't you? like. Well, yeah, the, the people had fought back before, so they'd seen what happened when they'd had this lovely colony that was going to be, you know, making loads of money for for Mother England. Isn't um, it ironic now that America like rules us? Well. 
we might as well be the fifty first. Yeah, it's more that we follow them. I think that they rule on us. The flag. I'm not sure they particularly want want us. We're we're like a, a bit of loo roll that they, you know, accidentally. I think got we're stuck we're a very issue. good landing point for them before they head into Europe proper. Yeah, if they need to go crack some well, skulls. because there's um. So Prestwick Airport, Prestwick Airport here um, is very much used by the American military um, mm. quite a lot. I've seen quite a few uh, American jet fighters and stuff here on their way to sort of uh, surrounding Ukraine and stuff like that. But they always stop off here to like refuel and well, get themselves sorted. We're a great little staging sorted. post, aren't we? Mm, yeah. Well, Hotham was convinced that they were trying to create a second America in Australia. These these um, spies that had infiltrated the diggers. Yeah. So he decided that what he would do is rather than try and call tensions, he would turn the pressure up. Mm-hmm. And he arranged a series of digger hunts okay. where he would send out a private army of men to go into the gold fields with instructions to demand that the diggers produce their license fee papers. The officers apparently would take great pleasure in forcing diggers to stop their work, climb the 160 foot from their shaft, and search in their tent under the hot sun for the appropriate documentation. Sounds worse than the people that uh, send you the letters for the TV licence. We are watching you. We demand to see your papers. Yeah, but this was shouting down a shaft going, come on, come on. (laughs) Why would they be carrying them around with them? Was it a legal requirement to have them on you? Well, it became a legal requirement because any digger who failed to produce a valid license when requested by these guys, hmm. um, for whatever reason, if yeah. it's, oh, well, you know, I've ordered it, it's not come yet, or, you know, oh, God, I've I've got it in, you know, a pack that I lent to a mate, whatever. If you couldn't produce it at that moment, uh, there would be an immediate £5 fine. So... Five times the cost of the license fee, uh, half of which the official who you know was working on behalf of Hotham was allowed to keep. So, oh, so it was, it was a in their interest. Incentive to yeah, yeah, yeah. go around and you know it was they were doing weekly sweeps. Well, because I can fields. imagine that would have caused a lot of confrontation, like parking attendants and stuff. Like the amount of confrontation that that job must entail. Yeah, but I mean. The guys, the officials going out, they were felt that they were protected by the fact that we're doing this on behalf of the, you know, the British, of the ruling government here. And yeah. also, if you look just over the horizon there, there's a massive army barracks. So um, yeah. we can go and speak to those guys. If you don't like it, me and you will go to the barracks and we'll see what they say. Um, I think they'll find it in my favour and you'll have to give me the £5. Off which I get £2.50, which is quite nice. That's a packet of ten cigarettes. Yeah. Oh, back in the back in this day, it keep you in cigarettes for a month. Mm. This is a, a significant amount of money they were being offered if they could, you know, snitch on people. Sometimes, to add insult to injury, the officials would insist that they personally search the digger's tent for the papers rather than letting the digger go in and get them. They would pocket anything they like the look of in the process. So if you had a few, you know a nice bottle of whiskey, they'd have it. Yeah. But oh well. Thank you very much for this gift. We were feeling thirsty. Thank you. What? No. Oh, that's how I forget how terrible my life is. <laughs> Please make it stop. The sun is just beating on me so hard. I just want me gold. I don't want to have to do this sober. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, 
this did not have the desired effect of quelling the unrest. In fact, if anything, shocker, the diggers appear to be getting more and more riled. Mm. Because Don't poke the bear. Well, they complained that they were being treated worse than animals. Which is... I mean, it wasn't the worst that anyone in Australia was being treated at the time, but it definitely wasn't the best. I, yeah. I do have some sympathy with them. In October of 1854, two Scottish diggers, James Scobie and Jimmy Martin... Scottish? They were returning to their tents from the Star Hotel in Ballarat... Yeah. where they'd been drinking until closing time. So they were good and merry. Their accents had become stronger and stronger to the point where they were now incomprehensible to anyone who wasn't a native <laughs> Scot. On their walk home, they noticed that the lights were on in the Eureka Hotel, an establishment owned by a man called James Bentley. Now, James, he prided himself on catering only to a very well-to-do clientele. So when the two dirt-covered Scotsmen began banging on the door asking for a beer or two, they were told, rather unceremoniously, to piss right off. <laughs> I have the officials in here. Go you away, know. sir. This is where the movers and shakers have some after-hours drinkies. It's not for the likes of you dirt-farming poor people. Mm. Go away. And Scobie and Martin, to be fair to them, they shrugged the shoulders and they carried on. If someone's saying they're not going to sell you a drink, you're not going to be able to buy a drink from them. No. Then they heard the sound of many pairs of boots running towards them before both were attacked from behind. Martin regained consciousness the next morning, covered in bruises and dry blood. James Scobie, however, wasn't so lucky. He had been literally kicked to death. So this is by, like, the officials who were drinking in the pub. In the in the Eureka Hotel, well, They'd the diggers felt that that was what had happened when yeah. uh, Martin came and told them the story. They thought, well, this is this pretty clear cause and effect here, yeah. And they demanded that an inquiry be held, and that Bentley and his friends they needed to be at least charged for what was obviously a premeditated murder. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, an inquiry was set up under the leadership of the police magistrate John. Deus, and it is D E W E S. So it's either Deus or Deus. Uh, whatever pronounced the Ashon you would like. Okay then, police magistrate John Deus, a man who just so happened to have been drinking at the Eureka Hotel on the night of the alleged incident, and who happened to be rather good friends with James Bentley. Yeah, and would you fair. believe he looked at all the evidence completely impartially? And he decided, we'll record it an open verdict, but we're not going to bring charges against anyone. Oh, it angers me so much. (laughs) Like, the people in power can just get away with stuff. He's probably winking at James uh, in the... uh, You didn't murder him, dear boy. Wink, wink. I I know this man. I drink with this man regularly. I've helped this man commit a murder. I know that this man isn't capable of committing a murder. And that is my last word on the matter. And they wonder why the people are so angry all the time. Well, yeah, because they were. The diggers were not happy with the outcome of this inquiry. Up the diggers. And on the 17th of October, they convened a very big meeting of 5,000 diggers right outside of the Eureka Hotel. Oh, yes. Yes. Where they were demanding justice. Power to the people. 
And they talked about all the different ways that they could get justice, that they could appeal to the Crown, uh, or that they could appeal to, you know, the governor of New South Wales and see if they'd intercede on their behalf. Uh, And at some point during this meeting, one of the diggers looked at the Eureka Hotel and said, uh, bet that's flammable. Why don't we just smoke the bugger out? Yes. Because the Eureka Hotel, it wasn't built out of brick. It was built out of wood and tar paper. <laughs> tar paper? Yeah. I know, that sounds incredibly fam- flammable, doesn't it? Yeah. Incredibly flammable. It does. I'm just going to build this with a flammable substance. And it was. And the diggers put some light to it, and soon it was being reduced to ashes. Bye-bye. Now, Bentley... He'd been in his hotel, hiding behind the bar, drinking brandy, which is what you do when you're faced with a mob, baying for your blood. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as it started to get hot, he snuck out the back door, uh, was given a horse, and started riding for his life towards the military camp, which is kind of understandable. Yeah. Now, there were actually soldiers present at the demonstration who were charged with stopping exactly this kind of thing happening. Okay. Unfortunately, the official who was supposed to read the riot act to make uh, anything that the soldiers wanted to do nice and legal. He dropped it at the crucial moment. Oh, is that where that saying comes from? To read the right act. It was a literal act saying that the military could intercede in... So just things. in case something was going to happen, like, big, they'd, just, they'd read the right act and then it could oh, happen Oh, yeah, it was legally. read at Peterloo, going back to you saying, you know, today is the anniversary of Peterloo. It is, but they not today to when this comes out. They could, they could go in. Mm. This would be the 19th by the time this comes out, I think. Yeah, yeah, your math works out. But mm. yeah, so the soldiers all stood, you know, watching this demonstration were like, right, if things go too far, the riot act will be read and then we want you to go in swinging, okay? So all the soldiers stood there and they're waiting for the riot act to be read and this guy's obviously fumbled it and dropped it on the floor and then he's sort of chasing after it and then his glasses fall <laughs> off and they smash and he's very short-sighted. And the soldiers are watching these guys burn the hotel to the ground and they go... God, you really would have thought they'd have read the riot out by now, wouldn't you? <laughs> They're being very lenient towards these guys. Jeez. Uh, it's funny. And I don't, don't really know why we're here anymore. We, I mean, the property damage is done. There's no more property. There's nothing we can do. Yeah. We're not firefighters. I mean, this isn't, this isn't our job anymore. We may as well go back to the barracks. That's where bloody Bentley's gone. If that's the person we're protecting... Back to the barracks, boys. Yeah, we've done a good job of standing around looking menacing. Yeah. Now, seeing the whole thing as a bit of a cock-up, Governor Hotham, he sacked de Ouse as the magistrate and ordered that Bentley and two accomplices stand trial, though only for manslaughter. Okay, why manslaughter? Surely manslaughter is like death bit, like an accident. Well, yeah, because... I, th- I accidentally kicked his head in, sorry. I think he made the... He made the um, calculation in his head of what is the minimum i can do to appease these miners at this particular moment to just calm the situation shut like, them up yeah well if i put them for manslaughter what's the the smallest thing i can sentence them to is three years hard labor which is what they were sentenced to so for the kicking to death of a scottish person for the heinous crime of asking for beer with a scottish accent they each got three years hard labor Whoa. Yeah, that's just terrible, isn't it? So that was to appease the miners. However, Hotham also decided that if he wanted to keep the diggers in line in future, he would need to instill military discipline. And he'd need to do this via the use of cannons. Okay. So 
the word got around that um, Governor Hotham, he was asking for his military uh, sort of divisions in Ballarat, where the miners were based, be reinforced with more soldiers from Melbourne, and that these soldiers brought field artillery, howitzers and cannon, um, so that they could, you know, basically hold all of these miners who were living in tents under the constant threat of bombardment should they ever rise up again. So military might is yeah. how they were going to play the You're game. You're basically going to sit there just outside of where all of the tents were and just aim a bunch of heavy artillery at the tents and be like, well, you know, everything's fine as so long as you're being good and paying <laughs> your licence fee. But ooh, if, you try to, if you try to burn down another hotel, Jesus, all of these things might just go off. Imagine. Mm, yes. Uh, these Being menacing by just having a presence. These things are designed to take out castles. What do you think they're going to do to your tent? <laughs> do you think your tent's going to do better or worse than a castle? That's the, that's the calculation you've got to make. In response, the diggers created the Ballarat Reform League, or the BRL. They B-R-L. B-R-L. They wanted to reach a negotiated settlement with the governor to improve the treatment of diggers in return for the diggers remaining peaceful and law-abiding. So they wanted to do a little bit of give and take, like if you could lower the licence fee, then we would be able to you know, get on. We'd be able yeah. to create more wealth, really, because the funny thing about it is when these miners actually did strike gold and they did make their fortune, they went straight into Melbourne and they spent it all. Yeah, of course. So it's actually going into the yeah. There's, no matter economy. what happened, the city were getting most of their money in the surrounding yeah. areas because these were the people that were paying the money into the local stores. These were the people yeah. who were all all the infrastructure that was being built was to service these people. Yeah, of course. Uh, Hotham decided, having heard their arguments, having heard you know what what they were willing to offer, that he was going to make exactly zero concessions. Okay other than to order a commission to be set up to review the current situation and when they'd done that, however long that takes, to report back to him and that he'd he'd do whatever this commission that he'd set up himself said when they reported back in the future. So he set it up himself, hasn't he? So yeah. It's also corrupt, isn't well, it? The miners, they, they looked at that and they went, ah, we think this is a stalling tactic, to be fair. We we don't think that you're setting this commission up in good faith, sir. We think you're setting it up to make it look like you're doing something, when actually, I don't think you're doing anything, Mr. Hotton. Mm. He then ordered that yet another detachment of soldiers be stationed in Ballarat. And when this detachment marched into town, the diggers let them know that they were a bit annoyed with these decisions by immediately attacking them. And they even managed to cause an injury by shooting a drummer boy in the leg. Oh, what did that drummer boy do, apart from play his drums? I think it was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So they were just like, you know, the the miners were coming up and they were intimidating them, firing off the pistols. And then one of them just got a bit overexcited and just shot into the group of soldiers. (laughs) And they had a, ow! And all the soldiers, all the big manly soldiers parted and this tiny little, you know, 11-year-old boy... Was sat there holding his leg. He's like, oh, "They've really hurt my leg, sir. Why my leg. They? I only got here yesterday." <laughs> Royal Britannia. So yeah, that was a bit of an embarrassment on behalf of the miners, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, it's the only 
thing that they've done so far that um I... that you're not in agreement with yeah okay that's that's good they're still they're still your heroes in this story mm, yeah they're the they're the um the heroes yes you said the word already the they are the heroes working class yeah uh, just fighting for their rights that's it. Things had quickly escalated to the point that on November 29th, a massive meeting was held when it was agreed that the diggers would all stand together in refusing to pay the licence fee anymore. Mass protests. They started burning their licence papers to show that they were super serious about this. Naturally, the authorities responded by reading the riot act and charging in with bayonets. <sighs> Shots were fired, though amazingly no injuries were reported and eight diggers were surrounded and taken prisoner. The rest of the diggers marched to an area of the goldfields that was ironically called Eureka, where they gathered at a stockade on Bakery Hill. And there, under the newly designed Southern Cross flag, 500 men swore an oath to fight to the death for their liberty. So they essentially got so pissed off they formed a militia. They marched off and formed a militia. They were like, right, we're doing this. Mm. This is now happening, guys. You've pushed us to the point where we formed a private army to take on the British army. Yep. And bear in mind, there were still these um, howitzers and cannon that were on the way from Melbourne. So it's quite a ballsy move, yeah, really. Yeah, bold. The British military were being led by a man called Commissioner Reed, And he decided, ah, we'll play a waiting game. We don't need to engage with them immediately. Because mm. he kind of assumed that the diggers will get bored of playing soldiers as soon as they ran out of booze. Because it's all very fun on the first day. Like, we're going to be an army and we're going to fight for our liberty. But if they're just sat in a stockade with no one engaging Yeah, the them, momentum goes. You kind of They kind of need to strike when they're angry as well. And but... also, fortunately for the British, you know, they kept these people dirt poor. So it's like they can't afford to be away from work for long. You leave them there for a weekend and when it gets to Monday morning, they'll be like, oh, shit. That's probably... exactly what they do now, Joe. Keep us poor so we can't revolt. Yeah. So we need like... to survive. They'll be back down their holes like the little rats they are. Yeah, they, they need to go back to work to their minimum wage job because uh, that's all we allow them to have and they shall be bloody thankful for it. Yeah, the most Reed had done is he made a note of who the ringleaders were so when everyone was back at work he could quietly go to the plots and he'd just pull them out of the holes and be like, sort of quietly take them from the gold fields when everyone, yeah. was, everyone was back to toiling. However, if this didn't work... Obviously, there were the howitzers and cannons on the way. So, you know, they've got this one chance, these guys, to get bored and go back to working or we'll just blow them to smithereens. Either way, win's a win. Yeah. For two days, the miners worked, reinforcing the stockade with bales of hay and logs, which, again, is probably not going to do much against the cannon. I mean, but, yeah, and very flammable. But instead of guys drifting away all the time more men were turning up. I love this. And the number had increased over those two days from 500 to 800. Yes. And very luckily for these men who were turning up, the stockade just so happened to include John Diamond's general store. I mean, I say it's lucky. It probably wasn't lucky for John Diamond because he'd just had this general store and suddenly it was like, right, this is now our castle. (laughs) <laughs> and he's just in the middle of it, and they start reinforcing it. It's like, what, what are you doing, guys? It's like, oh, we're about to fight the British. Oh. But oh. my business is here, sir. <laughs> well, it's good that your business is here, because we need you to supply all of our soldiers, thus implicating yourself in this um, insurrection. Uh, so you're in it, whether you like it yeah, or not. Yeah, 
as soon as you've sold any of those guys anything or they've just taken it from you it's like and he supplied them he is a revolutionary as well yeah i'm, I'm not I just i just wanted to sell apples <laughs> it also very luckily contained a smithy owned by a german called john Hafler. nice Hafler was more than happy to be involved in the revolution and he began producing crude pike heads that could be attached to poles. So uh, it should be said at this point that not every person who turned up to fight had a gun. Yeah. Um, so they needed some form of weapon and they decided that they were going to go up against the well-drilled military might of the British army with pikes. Okay. A la, you know, Tudor England. I can imagine they're quite scary, though, aren't they? Even though they might not be as effective. Like, it's got that fear factor. I, th- I think pikes are only scary if you get within the range of a pike. If you have a, a very modern rifle, as the British Army did at the time, you can stay a good two to 300 yards away from that pike. Mm, yeah, I guess so. But I said that, you know, the numbers already swelled from five to 800, and then 300 more diggers under the command of a man called Thomas Kennedy, marched into the stockade. So we're getting up to over a 1,000 now. Ah, oh, yes. However, That's it impressive. Well, it didn't remain over a 1,000 for long because as soon as the men that Thomas Kennedy had brought realised that they would not be supplied with guns or food or booze, which well, Thomas left. Kennedy had promised them, yeah, they quickly turned around and marched back the way they had come. We're here to fight for you. Hand me my gun. Get the stew in this pot and give me all of the grog that I can drink. And they went, well, we've got, we've got apples. John's, John's been kind enough to let us take his apples. We've um, got a general store. Yeah. Um, we do have some, some booze, but we're having to ration that. And here's a pike. Which, no. <laughs> I think I'll just go back because I know that there is a, a pub with booze. I don't in believe the in the cause that much. Yeah. I, b- I believe in it when you're giving me free stuff. I don't believe in it so much when I, I'm just having to fight with a, a bit of metal on a stick. That doesn't fill me with hope that we're on, on the winning side here. So <laughs> It got slightly better again, though, when 200 Americans from the Independent California Rangers Revolver Brigade turned up on horseback. The ICRA. Yeah. It's, it's not quite as good as an acronym, is it? No. Because it's not. It's the ICRA. I think you need to think about these things when you're naming stuff. Uh, it, they definitely needed um, another vowel in there somewhere if they were going to make it into a good acronym. See, so consistently eccentric is C. C. Do you listen? C. <laughs> but they turned up on horseback. They each had a brace of pistols, which you imagine are American six shooters. Yeah. And plenty of spunk. They were excitable. Pow, pow, pow. They were wearing slouch hats, and I didn't know what a slouch hat was. And I looked, and it's basically like an Australian version of a 10-gallon hat. So they, they looked every bit the sort of, you know, traditional um, American Cowboy sheriff. American. Yeah. But 200 of them turning up, like, yeehaw! <laughs> they congratulated the diggers on fighting for the ideals of republicanism. Then all but 20 of them rode off. Okay. Why? Because uh, they said that they were going to go out scouting... Um, and if any British reinforcements were being brought in, uh, they were going to take care of that. But I think really it's like, well, we don't all have to die with these stupid um, diggers. So okay. It's just a gesture. That's yeah, 20, we'll, 20, we'll 20 of you 20 can of you. stay behind. Yeah. Uh, the rest of us are going to go off and not die. So, woo! 
but they wanted to go and say, you know, this is a good thing. In case this works, we want to attach our name to it so we can say that we supported, you know, the ideals yeah. of republicanism in another British territory. Yeah. On Saturday, December 2nd, a number of the diggers who'd spent a good, you know, three days in the stockade, they decided there's no chance that the British army would launch an attack on the Sabbath. That would be um, improper. It would be against the laws of honour. So that they were safe to just go for one last night on the lash before the battle probably started on the Monday. That seems it's a good day to start a battle on the Monday. Yeah. You've got five days of battle. By then it's probably sorted either way. So why would you miss your drinking night? Yeah. By midnight, only around 150 were left, along with the 20 Americans and their horses. Now, unfortunately, as we know, the British army has only ever pretended to have honour. And as soon as their spies reported that the stockade was nearly empty, they couldn't resist a chance to be proper sneaky. And they decided not to wait for the heavy artillery to arrive the next week. Instead, they opted to launch a surprise dawn attack. And based on the fact that they had the element of surprise, vastly superior firepower, and that they were going to attack a much reduced force who the majority of them would be asleep. Yeah. The British decided that they only needed around double the amount of men that were in the stockade. So they sent a force of 278, okay. almost half of whom were on horseback. This force was placed under the command of a man called Captain Henry Wise. Was he wise? You will see how wise he was. Because when the dawn light caught the fixed bayonets of the British redcoats as they quietly advanced on the Eureka stockade. The cry went up from inside, Stand to! Due to the much reduced force within the stockade, practically everyone was able to get access to a gun of some sort, and the diggers, supported by the Americans, were able to get off a good volley or two of fire, injuring at least half a dozen of the advancing British soldiers. Mm, Okay, so not just a pushover that they thought they were going to be. Well, it's a plucky effort, you know. Mm. I, I, I think that probably surprised the Brits that they were getting sort of volleys of fire coming their way. But this was amateur hour. Yeah. And the British were the full professional force. They fell into two lines, one kneeling and one standing, and then unloaded on the parapet of the stockade, immediately killing around 20 of the defenders in a single volley. So the diggers and the Americans, they were shooting at targets. You know, each of them was picking a person and trying to shoot them. Okay. Whereas the Brits were just, you lined up and you shot straight forwards. Okay. Making a wall of bullets. So you didn't necessarily have to aim at a person. You aimed forwards, knowing yeah. that because you were forming a wall of, of bullets, of it was going to get someone. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you can see the difference. You know, 12 wounded versus 20 killed is. Yeah. That's the difference between the discipline of the, the British Army and the plucky have a goism of the diggers of the Eureka Stockade. Mm convinced that this first deadly volley uh, would have made the diggers fall into a full-on retreat captain wise led the charge up the hill personally towards the stockade running out in front of his men in order to encourage them about 100 yards away from the stockade he took a shot to the knee from a shotgun he tried to get up but he was then shot in the other knee by a shotgun and he was forced to sit bleeding in the grass shouting encouragement to his men like a Victorian version of Vince McMahon at the 2005 Royal Rumble. (laughs) 
which I'm hoping is a reference you get. Oh, absolutely. I used yeah. to love the wrestling, yeah. Where he tore both his quads climbing yeah. into the ring to complain yeah. about a botched finish and then just had to sit in the ring, <laughs> ordering people around. He later, and this is why it's not Vince McMahon, made a joke that his dancing days were over. And he was pretty very right, was Captain Wise, as only a few days after he'd made that joke, he died from gangrene as a result of his injuries. Ah, uh, no way. Yeah, so he was still, he was like, Jolly Japes, ha ha ha, well, I'm not going to be dancing tonight. It's like, yes, we need to you amputate those legs. not going also... to be breathing in a couple of days. Unsurprisingly, though, once the British had breached the walls of the stockade, it turned out the pikes were not really all that useful. Although they were used, people did pick up the pikes and try and charge the Brits, bless them. The British turned the stockade into a bloodbath, slashing with sabres and stabbing with bayonets. They also set poor John Diamond's store on fire for good measure, while several men were trapped inside. The man who had stitched together the Southern Cross flag that the Ballarat diggers were fighting under was a man called John Ross. And he died at the foot of the flagpole as he defended his flag to the last. Mm-hmm. Once the flag was torn down and liberally stabbed, the officers ordered that the British troops stop firing. The battle, I mean, you, you can say it was a battle. I think it was very one-sided, but it had lasted less than 15 minutes and oh, resulted really? in 60 dead diggers against only nine dead soldiers. Yeah, but one of them was the leader. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they did take out the leader, so if this was chess, mm. the, the diggers won. I'm sure they, they took some comfort in that. The remaining wounded diggers were captured and were placed in a makeshift prison while the authorities decided what to do with them. After hearing of the Dawn battle, Governor Hotham decided to declare martial law. However, this didn't stop the British soldiers having some fun that evening, firing indiscriminately towards the tents of the goldfield killing a woman and her child, amongst others. Ourselves. Apparently killed by the same bullet because the woman was clutching the child to her chest to try oh, and protect that's it. awful. But these were good rifles, you know, so... They They're could... not good people that shoot them. How do they sleep at night? And it was only after this night of unrest that Major General Sir Robert Nicholl finally arrived with the heavy artillery, as promised, from Melbourne. And he calmed everything down. Because it turned out that... General Sir Robert Nicholl was a reasonable man. Okay. And he decided that the best thing to do was probably to go and speak to the diggers and find out what was going on so he could get both sides of the story. And he quickly realised that their anger was understandable, it was genuine, and it was definitely not being directed by rebellious agitators with treasonous agendas. As they'd said all along, the miners were just like, look, we can't afford this licence fee. It's making it so we're living in poverty so where it's completely unfair the chap from melbourne is he british as well they're all british okay so he's come in and been like look guys you're being really like heavy-handed and actually their requests are very reasonable and they're not they're not anti-britain they're just anti this This uh, particular thing that you've put on them Yeah. yeah He convinced Hotham to remove martial law and wrote a scathing report which basically said that the entire affair could have been avoided if they had, at any point, treated the diggers as human beings. Ah, yes. Now, they'd arrested about 120 prisoners after Mm. the Eureka Stockade incident. The problem was 
that they couldn't hold that amount of prisoners because they didn't have a prison system. <laughs> the infrastructure still They didn't have there. the infrastructure. It was costing them so much to hold these prisoners that they quickly began whittling them down and just letting them off. So they were sort of going through until eventually they were only left with um, 12 people. Oh, okay. So they've gone from... Yeah. So they, they were tons. like, well, at least we can make some um, examples of these people. So they yeah. picked 12 people who they said were the leaders of the Ballarat Reform League. Okay. And they will be put on trial for high treason. Okay. Alongside one American. The other Americans have been released to avoid a diplomatic incident. But John Josephs, he was special. Okay. Because he just so happened to be black. And it was decided <sighs> that no one was going to start an international incident if he was hung. So like, and we'll throw him in as well. John Joseph, ironically, was also the first one to face trial. The defence relied on the fact that the British forces had fired the first shot. Therefore, the men in the Eureka Stockade had been justified in defending themselves. So they're saying, well, although they'd gone there and they'd fortified themselves, they were scared. Yeah, they didn't They didn't fire the first shot. And so. the argument was, there was a bit of a question, but it seems to be uh, sort of accepted that one of the British soldiers got a bit excited and decided to have a pot shot with their rifle. And that's what uh, tipped the stockade off to the fact that they were being attacked so they mm. responded in kind but also you know this was being tried by a jury and the jury were people who as a result of what the british army had done had um been placed under martial law for three days they'd been made aware of the fact that the general who turned up with the artillery had given uh, hot hummer dressing down and said this was ridiculous this was your fault so all of that was swirling around. Yeah. And they found John Joseph not guilty. I'm surprised. He yeah. was also, which must have been lovely for him, because he you know, he thought he was gonna be hung that morning. He was carried from the court by a cheering crowd. Oh yes. So he'd gone in there thinking, Oh my god. I'm gonna die. Yeah. They're gonna Because when they say all of the Americans, you you're free to go. Except you, John. You stay where you are, it's like, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, there's, this is it. I'm the example. And then, no, he's not guilty. And everyone cheered and they lifted him on the shoulders and they marched him out going, John, 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 John. <laughs> so he had a great day. There was a second trial that day. Um, and the second defendant, John Manning, who wasn't even at the Eureka Stockade, he was a newspaper um, writer who'd written some scathing things about the authorities and then was put on trial for high treason. Um he was also found not guilty and carried out of the court by a cheering crowd. Ooh. Now, the Victoria authorities, they noticed that this could become a pattern. And that if it did, and they went through another 11 trials like this, it might look a bit embarrassing. You know, they put 13 people on trial for high treason. And then none of them get done. Yeah, then it looks like they're a bit stupid, doesn't it? Yeah. So they decided the best thing to do would be to try delaying the other trials for a while to see if the public mood would shift against the diggers. But every trial, no matter what they tried to do, no matter how they tried to twist it, ended with a not guilty verdict. Yes. And the person being carried from the courtroom with cheering. Love it. Uh, Governor Hotham was ridiculed in the press. Good. And things were looking really good. By the end of it, it was just like, rather than trialling them individually, they were like, right, just chuck five of them in. Let's just get this over with. Get this done, yeah. It's such an embarrassment. I just want it finished now. So Governor Hotham's been ridiculed in the press, but that's okay. You know, you can shake off a bit of ridicule. You get to the next news cycle. 
you can you can fight your way through. Yeah. But almost as soon as the last trial had ended and he thought he'd put all of this behind him. You remember I said he'd set up that commission to try yeah. and stall um, the yeah, miners? Yeah, yeah. Well, it turns up they'd been working all this time in the background and they were ready to report back to him. Okay. Their findings were that the license fee was extortionate and that it could not be implemented without the diggers having representation. Um, amongst other things. And the recommendations were that the license was replaced with a miner's right, which was a yearly title deed for a claim that would cost £1 for the year, rather than £1 per month. It also, having one of these miner's right claims, ensured that each digger would have a vote in all elections. Oh, yes. And because Governor Hotham as part of the um, negotiating he'd done with the miners, agreed to implement any and all of the findings of the commission, he was forced, essentially in a stroke, to give in to all of the miners' demands. What? I mean, the sad thing about this was the miners didn't need to go and have this rebellion at the stockade. You know, this report was coming down the line anyway. Yeah. If things hadn't escalated to that point then no one would have died and they still would have got these reforms so it's a bit of a hollow victory but it's a victory nonetheless for the miners yeah one of the leaders of the ballarat reform league who had been tried for high treason and had lost an arm during the battle a man called peter layla he became the first digger to be elected to the legislative council in 1885 he would later become the speaker of the house of assembly oh amazing yes Power to the people. I mean, it sounds like all of this didn't need to happen for this. No, if they'd have just had a reasonable um, means of um, taxing the miners at the start and hadn't got greedy and had allowed these people who were living, you know, who basically, them turning up, had turned Victoria into a a major place. 200,000 people had turned up and that's why Victoria was suddenly... A place to be it, it was suddenly a powerful state and they wanted to have all the benefits of having this massive population but they didn't want to secede any of the privilege that they'd had when it was just literally melbourne yeah i mean it just didn't need to happen no not at all but while peter layla one of the people on the side of right takes his place in history you know uh, as the first miner to take political office the pub owner who had literally kicked everything off, James Bentley, was released from prison in 1856. He did not do well after his release from prison. He became a drug addict and he died of a deliberate overdose of laudanum in 1873. Mm. Going to show that every now and then there is such a thing as natural justice. Yeah. So, you know, at the, at the moment where he was kicking a miner's head in and felt he was untouchable, it's like, well, you know, we're always going to have the power here and these are always just going to be people we exploit. It was from him kicking that person's head in, it was less than three years until the miners had representation in the legislature. So it like kicked off like a whole series yeah. of events that yeah, he, um, he, left this untouchable chap to actually become... A uh, drug uh, addict, dangling a lord in the overdose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He did leave behind a wife and five children, which is sad, but you feel like the kids were better off having no dad than this guy as a dad. Yeah, he doesn't sound like a good chap, does he? 
he wasn't going to teach them good values if you know he's he's literally a murderer. Yeah, I'm just going to kick this guy's head in. And that is the story of the Eureka Stockade, the only uh, attempt at an armed rebellion in the history of Australia. And a bloody good one as well. The, the European history of Australia. I do not know how many civil wars were fought by the indigenous peoples. In I the mean, I'm sure there years. were. I'm there sure were there were many. Battles. Yes, I'm sure there were many. But um, yes, this was interesting scale. and um, also unnecessary, isn't it? It's just like people in power would just stop being so bloody unreasonable. And um, well, it's that whole thin end of the wedge. It's like if you, if you allow them to have a livelihood, the next thing you know, they're going to want to. You know, have other things, and if yeah. we let them have those other things, then they're going to want our things, and I don't want to give up my things. They're nice things; they mm. can't have them. Yes, fuckers. Uh, yeah. And this is the second um, story, actually, that I've um, come across in Britain's Forgotten Wars by Ian Hernan, which I bought it. I, I love, you know, it's one of those. I went on World of Books and I saw this book. And I could just see the front cover. And when I bought it, I didn't realise quite how thick it is. It's uh, one of the thickest books I own. And it covers three eras of um, sort of British conflicts can you around sort the world. Of dip in and out of chapters, or do you have to well, read each chapter it in... is a is a particular war? So they. Oh, cover, okay. Um, so think... you don't have to read the whole thing in one sitting. No, there's there's all individual wars. So it's it's really quite interesting. Um, and it's probably a book that I will dip into for future episodes as well. Well, there you go. A good purchase. And there's also a Eureka um, Stockade-specific Wikipedia called Eurekapedia, which gives you all the background to all of the people and what, what they did. Because <laughs> I didn't even mention there was um, one of the original leaders of the Ballarat Reform League was a Prussian gentleman who was very boastful about his military sort of might. And when they got to the point where they were like, right, well, we're going to fight for this, right? So we're going to need somebody to lead our forces. Um, he wanted to be given that job and everyone kind of didn't like him. So they didn't vote him to be leader of the troops. They voted no. Peter Layla and he sulked. He was dressed up in full sort of Prussian army dress, including a sword. Of course. So he was just sat in the corner of the stockade sulking. And then as soon as the battle actually started, he ran away. Uh, dressed in ladies' clothes and smuggled himself to Melbourne, where he was arrested. Oh, okay. So, Fine. I'm saying it wasn't. A, it was a good call not to make him leader of your forces. Yeah, because he. <laughs> can you imagine? Uh, again, I'm getting that picture of Little Britain. I'm a lady. Well, yeah, I, and I'm imagining when I hear Prussian, I can't help but think of like you know the um, the full on Bismarck moustache. I imagine every Prussian has a. Do you know it's funny Bismarck style I, moustache. I do as well. I'm not yeah. as soon as you say Prussian, I'm like, yep, definitely look like that. If you want to pass as a woman, you are gonna need to say that. No, this is my heritage. <laughs> I would rather die than shave this moustache. I mean, well, to be honest, it's a commitment having yeah. a moustache that magnificent and fancy. Mm, it is indeed all that work. Although I'm sure you've got people to do it for you. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.